0: So I pulled a little trick on you. Our sermon text actually isn't that passage in John. I'm going to try and work us through all of Romans chapter three. That's a big task and probably too big of a passage to put in the bulletin. But I think that John three passage does a really phenomenal job of summarizing Romans chapter three. <clears throat> so thank you, Clay, for that. <clears throat> I want to take a. A second to acknowledge, David, I was blessed by the fact that you were up there a part of the worship team again. That was so beautiful to me. Praise God, man. Praise God. God. Uh, Thursday I had a chance to pray with uh, Kevin and Sam. And uh, Kevin said in his prayer something that made me laugh out loud while he was praying, and that is that uh, apparently I am known in the small house as the wrath and suffering guy. Yeah. So that was interesting. Oh, I'm already wondering. I'm sorry, David. David told me to try and stay in front of the camera, and I struggle with that. I need your grace this morning, because I'm doing a few things differently than I have done in the past Anytime I've had a chance to teach or preach. Um, First of all, I'm using this little microphone, so I'm not holding a microphone. That's a little different. And then also, I'm trying to... I really want to preach in the Spirit. Um, And let me explain what I mean by that. I think praying in the Spirit, a a lot of what praying in the Spirit means, at least what the Lord has taught me, is that I don't come into a time of prayer with anything that I'm like no agenda, no like prepared words or phrases, but I literally just in the moment I'm receiving what the Lord has given me and then I'm giving it in an expression. And I kind of want to preach the same way. It doesn't mean that I haven't prepared. It doesn't mean that I haven't studied. It doesn't mean that I haven't taken notes, but I want to be open to what the Lord would impress upon your hearts through me this morning. Using the text and by God's grace, that His Spirit would come, bless my efforts, and also give you guys ears to hear and eyes to see, just like Clay prayed for. As I was praying, preparing for the sermon, I was struck by this, this notion that I had never considered before. Moses came down from the mountain with stone tablets, and the law of God was written on stone. And apart from Christ, we have what the Bible describes as stony hearts. And Paul talks about the oldness of the letter versus the newness of the Spirit. And it's just there's an interesting contrast. There is a stony heart... Juxtaposed with the law written on stone. And then there's what Ezekiel talks about, the promise of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit will come and it will take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And then one of the things the Holy Spirit does is he writes the law of God onto our hearts of flesh. And so when I preach this morning, I. I have a burden because I believe that there are people in this room right now this morning who will hear what I say and their hearts that are stone will become hardened even further. That's a like that is weighed on me this week, as I've thought about this morning. I believe that there are people in this room right now who will hear what I have to say. They have stony hearts and they will view the topic that I'm going to be expressing. They will focus on justice and wrath and they won't consider Jesus and the work on the cross and their hearts will become more stony, more hardened. And they will be securing up in heaven, wrath that is being stored up for them to be poured out on the last day in judgment. And that's like, that's a terrifying reality. And that's why Paul says, We plead with men that they might hear and they might receive the good news that is in Christ Jesus. But the Lord also gave me not a vision in the sense of like um, some out-of-body experience, but he gave me the reminder that there are those who will hear the word preached and their hearts will be changed and they will receive Jesus and go from death to life. And that's my endeavor this morning. So let me just take a minute and ask the Lord that that would happen. Father God, you know that I'm completely inadequate to do this task what is man that he would come and, and, and try to explain your nature? Who am I to come and try to talk about the glories of Jesus? Like Isaiah, I'm a man of unclean lips who, who lives among a people of unclean lips. Like Moses, I can trip over my words and stutter. I'm not adequate. My joy, Lord, and my hope is that You are. Your Word is living and active. It's able to divide soul and spirit. And Your spirit the Holy Spirit that is God. You are in the world. You've been sent to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so, search in my own heart, Lord, and reveal to me any wayward ways, and may I lay myself before you at your mercy, and may you use my half-hearted efforts and redeem them by Your Word and by Your Spirit that they might be words of truth to Your people this morning. May it be true that this morning the harvest is ready, the fields are ripe, and I pray, Lord, that as we gather this morning, we've worshipped You, as we worship You in Your Word, that You would take this flawed message, this flawed messenger, this perfect message, and bring people into life. And Your children who hear Your Word this morning, may they leap, may their spirits flip within them like John the Baptist in his mother's womb at the presence of Jesus. May we exult in who You are, and may Your people hear Your voice. And I pray, Lord, that You would do the work of changing their minds. Give us the mind of Christ through Your Word. And conform us into your image that we might be like you and that we might be ambassadors for Jesus and take the light of the world into the world. I pray that you do that work this morning. Not because of me or because of David or the glory of Agape, but because you are worthy of worship And may every worshiper come to declare the goodness of Jesus Christ. And may we have a heart, may we have a single heart that is fixed on your promises, namely that you will return and make all things new. Amen. So let me say one thing again. If you are not in Christ, you need a new heart. And if you are in Christ, you need a redeemed mind. You don't need a new heart if you're in Christ. You need your mind to be constantly being conformed into the mind of Christ. And that happens through His Word. So that's what the the next few minutes are going to be about. About looking to His Word. And that's why I'm going to try and camp out in Romans 3. Because what I'm doing here is I'm trying to exposit the Word of God. We're going to go through. I want to explain to you what Romans 3 is about so that for the rest of your life you know what Romans 3 is about. And hopefully the Lord will give me grace to do it in such a way that you are equipped to study the Word better on your own so that you can feed yourself And find out what Romans 4 is about, and 5, and the rest of God's revelation to humanity. So, if you do not have a copy of Scripture, we have some. We will give them to you, both study Bibles and children's Bibles. If you just throw your hand up, I will send Isaac to bring you a copy. And if you have your copy of Scripture, I would invite you to look to Romans chapter 3, because we're going to just kind of walk through the majority of this book together. I'm going to pause at times, going to reiterate things at times, but that's what we're going to try and do. And also, if you have a handout, if you don't, they're on the back table there, there's going to be a few things that you can fill out as we go along. The Word of God is living and active and it changes our minds and in it we find the mind of Christ and in it we also find the nature of God and that's what this sermon series, Show Me Your Glory, is about. We want to understand God better so that we can love Him more. And to start, I, just, I want to remind you guys that the first thing in your handout, Satan's tactics... To deceive and to consume you always begins with an attempt to make you doubt the Word of God. That's how it worked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say? You know what happened when they began to doubt the Word of God? They took the fruit and they ate it. Adam completely neglected his responsibility to guardian creation namely his wife who had been given to him he didn't protect her when she was being deceived by the serpent and then he followed in her act of rebellion and disobedience the one who had actually been given the command adam and he took the fruit and he ate it and every wicked thing you see in this world finds its origin in that first moment of doubting the word of god And we see how it ought to be handled when Jesus was in the wilderness after having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and he was tempted by the devil himself and every temptation of Satan was to twist the word of God. And Jesus was able to withstand that temptation because he knew the word of God and he was able to rightly combat Satan's lie with the truth. And that's why we're in the Word this morning. And that's why we set aside such a significant portion of our corporate gatherings to to preach and teach the Word. Because that's what we need and that's how we fight the tactics of the enemy. So, Satan's tactics always begin with an attempt to make you doubt the Word of God. I came across this quote this week in preparing for this sermon. And it was from a medieval mystic named Julian of Norwich. And this is what she wrote. Wrath is nothing else but a rebellion from and an opposition to peace and to love. And either it comes from the failure of power or from the failure of wisdom or from the the failure of goodness. No. That is wrong. Julian of Norwich wrote some books that are still regarded today. And they were based off of visions she had when she was really sick. You know what other religion exists today based off of a bunch of visions some dude had? Mormonism. Anytime you take the Word of God and you set it aside and you let truth to you be informed by a vision or an experience... Or some mystical thing that happens to you, you tend towards creating heresy or even entire cults that live long after you. This is our foundation. Romans. Before I start in verse 1 of chapter 3, let me just back up a little bit and give you a little context. Romans chapter 1 starts with Paul saying, I'm Paul, I'm writing. It's interesting. He doesn't address the church in Rome, he addresses the saints in Rome. A lot of his other epistles he addresses the church in Rome. And I wonder if that's because the elders had not yet been appointed in Rome. He just addresses the saints. But there's a theological, so, so there's like a greetings thing for the first 15 verses, and then there's a theological open in verse 16 and 17 and 18 of chapter 1. Let me just quickly read those to you. Once once he gets over the greeting, he introduces the theology of the the book of Romans. This is what he says in in chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. From heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And then he spends the rest of chapter one explaining how everything that's necessary for us as humans to know that there is a God is revealed in His creation everything from the intricacies of the, of how your eyes work and how our body can fight disease and fight infection to things like the natural order of things and how we see patterns and then the beauty of creation you could go on and on but it, what god has created is sufficient for us to know there is a creator and he is good he is other than us and in that revelation we become accountable Every human who's ever lived is accountable to the revelation in creation, namely that God's eternal nature and divine power have been made manifest in creation. So therefore, when they then rebel against that reality and don't do the things that we know from God's law and His nature as revealed in His Word we ought to do, when they don't do that, they're accountable to what they do know, namely there is a God and He is good and He calls us to be good. Then the question arises in chapter new. Well, what about like the Jews? So the Jews are good because they're Jews. They're the chosen people of God, and God gave them the law. So like they're fine, right? No. Because what the law does is it comes in and it says do this. And what's the first thing that you want to do when you see a letter that says to so and so, not you, confidential, their eyes only? What's the first thing you want to do when you see that letter? I just, just want to take a peek there. The law brings knowledge of sin. And so the Jews actually find themselves not really in a better position because they have been given the oracles of God, and then they look at that, and they don't want to obey, and then we see throughout the entire narrative of Israel's history, they really struggle with the whole obedience thing. So he kind of like takes the first two chapters to paint a really dark picture. Namely, we're all screwed. Then we get to Romans chapter 3, and this is what verse 1 of Romans 3 says. And I'm going to walk through, I'm just going to read through the first eight verses. Then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, Paul says. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So God called out for himself a people, and he made them special. He said, you're my chosen people. And then he gave them the law and he gave them the prophets. And he's saying here, that means something. That's a benefit. But the Jews during the day that this was being written, thought that simply by being Jews, they were good. Because they had blood, that the DNA which traced back to Abraham, that meant they were okay spiritually. And in verse 3, it says, but what if some were unfaithful? If the If the chosen people of God are good, what if some of them disobeyed and rebelled? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, he says. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. It doesn't make sense. So they're the chosen people of God, but yet they're still going to get punished? That's what he says in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, namely the judgment, that He will still judge those who disobey Him, what shall we say? Does it mean that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And then there's a parenthetical here. He says, I speak in a human way. It's so egregious, this thought, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us on those who rebel against his general revelation or those who rebel against his specific revelation, namely the Jews who disobey, that he has to, like Paul has to be like, dude, I know that there's no nothing in me that thinks this. I'm just speaking in a human way. But that, that question in verse 5, or the assertion that God is un, unrighteous to inflict wrath on us is the predominant theory of our day the wrath of God is a very unpopular notion in the world today because we've taken truth in our age and we've completely thrown it aside and we basically have said truth is whatever it is to you, so how dare you say that somebody's lifestyle or choices are wrong? Who are you? And the notion that God would inflict wrath on people for... Their chosen lifestyle is anathema in our day. I just, I, I found it interesting. He, Paul is so discouraged by that notion, he has to, like, even just let people, let his readers know, like, I'm not saying this at all. That, that's a preposterous way of thinking. By no means, he says in verse six for how then could God judge the world? Everybody's deserving of his wrath. So then there's this clever little lie of Satan. Well, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to His glory, namely, if God is able to display how holy He is by punishing sin, why am I condemned as a sinner? Like, if the whole purpose of me is to rebel against God and then be punished by Him to show how good He is, then I'm kind of like, I'm an actor in this whole play, and why am I going to get in trouble for that? And then the question in, in verse 8, which is the hedonistic pursuit of our age, why not do evil that good may come? And some people who did not understand the gospel that, that Paul was teaching, that's what they charged him with doing and preaching a free gospel for all who would believe. He says, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. We'll get into that a little bit later in the the passage. So Romans 1 or 2 set up this picture where everybody is accountable to the truth that is revealed to them whether they are aware of the Scriptures or not. And then he, he deals with the first part of chapter 3 to basically say, The Jews thought they were okay simply because they were Jews. But just because God's purposes are revealed in your life does not mean you're not accountable to your sin. And wrath is a reality. What is wrath? If you look at your handout, wrath is the appropriate response towards that which perverts despises or destroys what is good. Think about when you were a little kid and you get to go to the beach and you have some buckets and some shovels and you spend 30 minutes working with those and you are able to create this really intricate sandcastle. And you're like, you're so proud of it. Like You put little parapets and maybe you took some army soldiers, and you set them on the top, and everything's just so, and you're really, you're really kind of pleased with your creation. And then your big brother comes and kicks it. You're instantly, like, furious, like, ah! Right, Sam? Right, William? What happens when you build a beautiful Lego structure, and then Jake knocks it down? Man, how much more a holy creator... Who created everything that we can see and the infinite amount that we can't? I was looking at a map in the prayer room this morning, and I was just like like Antarctica is this huge continent, and there's been like a handful of humans who've seen like the tiniest fraction of that entire continent. We have no idea what exists on that. Like, there's just like think about that. There's millions of acres of Antarctica that no human has ever seen then think that there are entire planets. And beyond the planets of our solar system, there's other stars with other planets. But then beyond that, there's galaxies with billions of stars. And beyond that, there's more and more and more of that. And then sin entered creation and it ruined everything on this earth. It tainted it all. Now we have cancer. Now we have betrayal. Now we have adultery. Now we have children who die. Now we have war. Now we have famine. None of those things would have existed had not sin entered the world. And if you get Furious at your own brother for knocking down your sandcastle. How much more is it appropriate for God to take sin and destroy it one day? If somebody murdered your spouse, you would demand justice. And so wrath is justice. It's punishing and destroying that which perverts and destroys and despises what is good. So we can kind of wrap our head around God punishing sin and maybe even we can delight in God punishing the devil, but where it gets where it begins to prick our pride is the notion that God would punish us. But I want you to understand that those things are one and the same. If God has given you everything that He's given you, His general revelation and what what is happening right now, whether you realize it or not, is you're sitting right now and hearing the preaching of the Word, and now you're becoming accountable to this truth. You are now accountable to what I'm saying to you in this moment. You can't get to the last day and say, well, nobody ever told me that the wrath of God is coming and that it's good and just for those who reject a, a savior who loves them now you're accountable because i'm telling you we have a we kind of we kind of struggle with the notion that god's going to pour his wrath out on us my 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 hope is that by the time i'm done this morning you will see how it's incredibly appropriate for god, for god to pour out his wrath on those who reject Him. Because my goal this morning is not for you to feel beat up or inadequate. My goal this morning, if I've done my job, is for you to get a glimpse of the glory of the one who took all of that wrath upon Himself for you. <laughs> if you see that, you realize that wrath is really appropriate. Because He's worthy of your worship. And He's worthy of your repentance. And there's no reason to remain in your sin because He bids you come. Let me get there. Verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. That doesn't make any sense because He just said in verse 1, what advantage has the Jew? What values of circumcision? Much in every way. Well, he's like 100% con- contradicting himself here. No, he's not. The advantage of the Jew is access to the truth. The advantage of just simply being a Jew? Nothing. There's no advantage. The fact that your blood, you can trace your lineage back to Abraham, it means no difference as far as God's wrath is concerned, none. Every single person who was a Jew in the Old Testament who could say, I'm a part of the special chosen people of God upon whom God has given all his blessings and glory and favor spiritually as an individual that has no bearing on where you stand spiritually. In the same way today, if you say, I have, I've had godly parents and I, and, and they had godly parents and I, I grew up my whole life going to revivals in the summer and, and like, like I think I'm, I've done a pretty good job of doing the things I'm supposed to do. What advantage of that? None, none. What? What then? Are we Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, so everybody is under sin, as it is written. And, this, and then he quotes Psalm fourteen and Psalm fifty-three, and this is what it says. "'None is righteous. No, not one. "'No one understands. No one seeks for God. "'All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. "'No one does good, not even one. "'Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. "'The venom of asps is under their lips.' Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the condition of all humanity. And and Paul takes the first three chapters of Romans to set up that paradigm. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. The warning for you in your handout this morning, God is storing up his wrath for those who disobey him. And that is our natural state doesn't matter if you were born a Jew or you were born into a wonderful Baptist family and your great-granddaddy was a preacher. You are accountable to God. And you have embraced sin and selfishness because it's part of your nature. Because Adam ate of the fruit, every person has been faced with this, do you want to honor God or seek what's good for yourself? And we all choose to seek what's good for ourselves. And the result of that is that we, we disobey Him. We reject His law. And He is storing up wrath for those who find themselves in that condition. But it's interesting, if you look at the Bible... God will freely forgive any of those sins that you commit in that state. All of them. He will wipe them all away. He will freely take them and move them as far away as the east is from the west. Except for one. The next thing on your handout God is storing up his wrath for those who disobey him and reject Jesus. That's the thing he won't forgive. That's the thing he cannot forgive. His wrath, God's wrath. Let me look at back to. I'm gonna flip back to Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. His wrath will be inescapable. His wrath will be consuming and His wrath will be eternal. If you are not in Christ this morning, and you do not listen to what I'm saying, you are in danger of encountering the wrath of God when Jesus returns and judges the world, and His wrath will be inescapable. There is nothing you can do. You are not so great that you can defy Him in that day, and you are not so small that He won't notice you. You won't be able to hide because His wrath will come from heaven and will consume everything. It will swallow you up and you will be like, to quote a preacher I love, a little tiny wax figurine in front of a blast furnace. There will be no escaping it and it will consume your mind, your heart, your soul. And it won't be for a minute the effects of God's judgment on you will be for eternity. And if that's all I said this morning, I should never be allowed up here again. Because that's not what this really is all about. It is a reality, though, of this message, and we cannot miss that. You can't miss it. If you... If you tend in your life towards flippant sin, it's because you, t- you think too little of the holiness of God and of the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf. Because if you flippantly sin... You're rejecting that there is wrath for sin. But again, if that's, if that's, if that's all I said this morning, I'd, I'd be failing. The, the good news, let me say the good news because that's the next thing on your handout. God is just. So we, I have to establish the reality of wrath because it's necessary to the gospel. There is consequence to sin and rebellion. God does not let rejection of his law but much more importantly he does not let rejection of his son stand he has to destroy it the same way if somebody murdered your spouse or your child and the judge they found the killer and the judge looked at him at the after the trial and was like you know what this was a really bad thing but like we're just too busy right now to fool with you so just go ahead and go just whatever go away you would you would be furious you would demand justice The holiness of God is such, is so great that he cannot just let sin pass. He doesn't just let it go because it's a rejection of his nature. Sam talked about the holiness of God. It's the one thing that like is repeated in scripture three times. It's like the most you can emphasize is that God is holy, holy, holy. He is not anything like us. He's not anything like we see in the world. And anything good in this world is just a glimpse and a shadow and a sliver of how good he is. And sin despises all of that. It spits in his face. God is just, and he he has to deal with sin. But there's this, man, there's this beautiful thing in the gospel that I want to tell you about. I cannot end the sermon here. I cannot, because the gospel doesn't end there, and the Bible and the redemption story doesn't end there. Look, Look with me again. Verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What does that mean? What does justified mean? Let me say this. If you believe that you can lose your salvation, it's probably because you do not understand how God talks about salvation in His Scripture. Namely, I'm going to put to you, that when salvation is talked about, it's talked about kind of in phases. Don't hear me. Don't misunderstand that. Like, there's not levels to our salvation, but there's ways that God talks about our salvation. And the first one, the entry level, is justification. That is, that is the process by which you go from being a hater of God to a child of God, where you go from being who is outside of His family and outside of the covenant to being somebody who is a part of it. And this, what he's saying in verse 20 is the beginning of the good news, right? We, we've got the first three chapters of Romans that paint this picture that our works show that we, are not in Christ, that we are not His, and we are accountable to that reality, and we are accountable to our sin, and the wrath of God rightly falls on us. Our deeds show that we are deserving of His wrath. But verse 20 says, like flip it around, By works of the law, no human will be made right with God. Because that's what justification is. It's being made right with God. It literally means to be declared not guilty. And that doesn't happen. Here's the good news. That doesn't happen through works. It doesn't happen through the the things that you do. For By works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, okay, so you're saying that because of my works, I'm shown to be a rejecter of God and somebody who spits in his face, and the bad news is I'm fully due his wrath, and he's going to pour it on me, I can't escape it, and it's going to consume me, it's going to last forever. Well, that sucks. Yeah, but, but listen, there's nothing that you can do that can make you right with God. There is no works of the law that can make you right with God. Oh, well, now that's really great. So what are you saying then, Josh? Danged if I do, danged if I don't. No. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, I'm inviting all of you to underline it, is Romans 3.21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. doesn't matter if you're a Jew or not although the law and prophets do bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God. I think that has two meanings. First, it means that when Jesus came, when God entered His creation, took on the limits of having flesh in His humanity, he did do all the works of the law that he was supposed to do, that we, are, we can't do. He did obey because he was God. He perfectly fulfilled everything that God required. His entire life he resisted the devil. He established perfect obedience. And then he fulfilled the Scriptures in laying down his life and all of the Old Testament system was meant to point to this Passover lamb Jesus who would come and actually on Passover be just like the Passover lamb when the Israelites were trying to escape slavery in Egypt. They took a lamb and they killed it and they took the blood and they wiped it on their doorpost. And anybody who was in that home and stayed in that home that night did not die when the angel of the Lord came and brought judgment. The righteousness of God that's revealed in the gospel is that Jesus perfectly obeyed all of the law and then He was the fulfillment of the law by being sacrificed. He was the Passover lamb. When Jesus anticipated going to the cross, He sweat drops of blood in the garden. And I really, really do not believe that the thing that he was most trepidatious about, the thing that he was most worried about, was the physical suffering he was going to endure. Although it was great. I think that it was for the first time in all of eternity, he knew what was coming. When he, became, when he who knew no sin became sin, for the first time in all eternity, fellowship with the Father that he had enjoyed for all of eternity was going to be broken. And that grieved him. God is just. And because He is just, somebody had to deal with the sin and the wrath that all of humanity had stored up until that day. And it was His own Son. And originally, when David asked me to preach, I, I was really going to focus in on this, this one verse. In Luke, it's the Palm Sunday verse that I just... I, well, it's, it actually preceded Palm Sunday a couple days what well, is one I just think is so beautiful. <clears throat> Isaiah, I mean sorry, Luke 9, 51 through 52, this is what it says. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, this is Jesus taken up to the cross, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a, a village of, Samar- of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people didn't receive him because he wasn't focused on them because he had set his face towards Jerusalem. What does that mean? Well, it's a reference to Isaiah 50, verse 6 and 7. This is what it says. Talking about the suffering servant, I gave my back to those who would strike it, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God help me, helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Jesus knew what awaited him in Jerusalem Passover week, but yet he set his face to go. That's, that is the most beautiful Palm Sunday picture I can paint for you. Why? Because Jesus knew what awaited him and he was determined. I am going to go suffer and take on the wrath of God that is due all of those whom I will put my love and spirit in. Because God is just, he cannot look over sin. And because God is just, somebody had to pay that sacrifice, and that was Jesus. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem and endure the wrath that you deserve. That you deserve. He took it all. Hebrews says, once for all, Jesus drank the cup of wrath. And he also says that there, like, there's nothing, there's no more wrath left for the believers. There's no wrath because Jesus took it all on the cross. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law because the righteousness of God is Jesus, His life, and His death. Come back with me to Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or made right with God as a, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus I talked about the, there being like levels of salvation. Justification is when you believe in Jesus. And that's the moment that the Ezekiel promise of taking out your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh, and God writes His law in your heart, that's when that happens. When you believe. Sanctification is the process that happens from that moment until the day you die. And it's the process by which you are conformed into his image. It's not about changing your heart. It's about changing your mind. That happens through understanding his character and delighting in his word and experiencing the sweetness and the beauty and the glory of Jesus. It happens when you look and you consider who Jesus is and what he did and how he thought and why he did the things he did and what he does for you. And you fall more and more in love with him. And the idea of going back to the old things, back to the wickedness that you lived in, back to the selfishness, back to the self-centeredness, you're like, that's gross. I don't want to go back to that because I've seen something so much better. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation, which means it is an atoning sacrifice that pleases the one to whom the sacrifice is being made. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received, not by good works, but by faith. That was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. That means God didn't just crush everybody who sinned against him from the time of Adam to the time of Jesus. He was patient. He was telling a story. And he had promised that a Messiah was going to come who was going to make things right. Verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, he might actually deal with the sin, but also because he dealt with the sin and because Jesus took it all, he can now justify anybody who believes in him. Justify who? The one who has faith in Jesus. So, God is just in your handout. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, God freely justifies the ungodly. He doesn't justify the Jews. He doesn't justify those who turn their life around. He justifies the ungodly. What is required for you to be made right with God? Simply to acknowledge Him who made it possible. It's not fair, (laughs) but it's the glory of the gospel. You deserve wrath. Jesus took it all. Just look to Him and believe. I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. You will not find in any outdoor wilderness survival guide a remedy for a venomous snake bite to make a, a, a serpent and stick it on a stick and look at it. But that is exactly what Jesus, the angel of the Lord, told Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness when they were dying from venomous snakes. He said, take a bronze serpent, put it on a staff, and hold it up. And anybody who looks at that won't die from the venom of the snake bites. Why? That's a weird story. Because it was to show us the gospel, namely, that he who knew no sin would become a curse and be hung on a cross and simply by looking to him, you are spiritually made right with God. If you tend towards flippantly sinning, it's because you you think too little of the holiness of God and the weight of the wrath of God and that Jesus took it all but i don't want this morning to you f- for you to feel like i'm beating you up so if you tend towards self-deprecation or if you tend to this feeling like, oh i'm so wretched i'm so unworthy i just can't get it together man i just I, I keep doing dumb things i think it's because you think too much of your own performance and you, you you think too little of jesus's perfect obedience you spend too much time thinking about how much you do or don't have it together and you spend you likely struggle to believe that Jesus really, totally takes on your sin on the cross and that He actually imparts His perfect righteousness on your behalf such that when God looks at you, He doesn't see you and all your failures. He just sees the perfect obedience of His Son. We have a good pastor in David, and I love this man, and uh, I want to be like him. That's why I have the same belt he has, and I wear a blue blazer when I preach, and I'm uh, putting a Charles Spurgeon quote in the bulletin. But this is what it says. My great object is to lead you to love him who so loved you that he set his face like a flint in his determination to save you. O ye redeemed ones, on whose behalf this strong resolve was made, ye who have been brought by the precious blood of this steadfast, resolute Redeemer, come and think a while of Him, that your hearts may burn within you, and that your faces may be set like flints to live and die for Him who lived and died for you. It would not be sufficient for me just to talk about the wrath of God this morning because the wrath of God has been dealt with on the cross And the gospel message, the gospel message is that anybody who would come and be reconciled with God can come and be totally reconciled with God simply by looking to Jesus. By simply believing the promise that you can come and have all of your sins washed clean, you can be made new, and you can have a heart not made of stone that has to look at a law written on stone that's cold and dead, but instead God can come transform you from the inside out and give you a new heart on which He writes His law and puts His Spirit and enables you to then for the first time in your life obey not out of fear for the wrath of God, but out of love for Him who took the wrath of God. The difference between those things are life and death. The difference between those perspectives of thinking that you have to live a certain way to be made right with God versus delighting in Him who has made you right with God is a difference between whether or not on that last day He says to you, well done, good and faithful servant, or He says to you, you can't can't stay here, I don't even know who you are. And so I'm going to go back to what I said at the beginning. There are people in this room right now whose hearts are being hardened because their pride says, no, I don't, I, I don't accept that God. That's the God of the Bible. And He's the only God. He's the only true God. And that's what His Word says about Him, that He's storing up wrath for those who say, no, not this way. And it breaks my heart that your heart will be hardened because... He's not just some angry God looking to hurt you. He's a God who loves you, and because He is just, He dealt with that wrath by entering His own creation, doing everything you can't do, and yet drinking the cup of God's wrath on Himself. And He who knew sin became sin, so that you might become the righteousness of God in Him. By works of the law? No. By simply Believing. I'm going to fast forward. Just because I just love this verse, man, it's one of my favorite verses. Two verses in the whole Bible Romans 4 4 and 5. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift or as grace, but as his due or as debt the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith will be credited as righteousness. When you've worked all week at the end of the week and your boss gives you a paycheck, that's not grace. That's debt. He owes it to you. And it is robbery if he doesn't give it to you. But that is not how it works with God. The way it works with God is to him who does not work, you just show up on Friday, but you believe that the boss is a good boss. <laughs> he just—he doesn't give you a paycheck; he gives you the whole company. That's how it works with God and God's economy. Simply by believing that He is good, and in His goodness, He sent His Son, and His Son has completely dealt with all of the sin and the wrath. You can be made right with Him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and I don't know how you want to close the service, but I would ask that if if you delight in the person of Jesus, and what I'm saying to you this morning, your heart swells within you, and you say yes and amen, God is good, I love Jesus, then sing, exult in who He is, and worship Him. Get on your knees, get on your face, however the Spirit will move you this morning, exult in the good news that you have received a Savior who saves your soul from the wrath of God. And as I've, as I've talked this morning, if something is going on in your heart and you're like, oh, what, what is this? I've never felt this before. I don't, I don't like what Josh is saying, but I think there's hope in it. Come talk to David. Because what, what is happening is the work of it's called regeneration, he started to take your heart of stone out and he started to give you a heart of flesh. And David wants to walk through with you the specifics of the Gospel and how you can cry out to him and say, Lord, redeem me. Make that be true of me that I can delight in who you are. If that's going on in your heart, come talk to David. Do not delay. Because if you don't come to him, the wrath of God is waiting for you. And I'm afraid that there are some this morning whose hearts are being hardened as I've talked and you don't like what I'm saying and you, you say in your pride, that's all whatever for you, man, but I refuse to worship God like that. <laughs> On the last day when you stand before Him, He will remind you of this morning. I don't I don't want to see you. Be told to you can't stay and I don't want to see you be thrown into the outer darkness. I beg you to believe because the wrath is inescapable. But Jesus who is worthy of our worship drank the entire cup for all who will believe. So believe in Him. Father God, You are worthy of worship because You are good and just. But You didn't leave it at that. You became the glorious, wonderful, beautiful Redeemer and nobody in this room has even a fraction of an idea of how wonderful You are. But I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, you be present with us in, this, in these next few moments. And as we sing, may you give us hearts that sing, delighting in who you are. And if there's wrestling, may you bring that to completion in newness of life. And I beg you, Lord, let not those whose hearts have been hardened leave this place with hardened hearts Grant them repentance. And may they understand that it is as simple as looking to Jesus and saying for the first time in life, maybe maybe it is true. Maybe there is something to this message. And for agape, Lord, for this church that you are building up, may we understand your nature and that it culminates in the cross and that wrath is absolutely a part of it, not because you are a wrathful God that is inherent in who you are, but because you are a holy God who does not let sin pass, and that is one of the reasons why you are so beautiful, and because you do not let sin pass, you dealt with it yourself. And may that inform the worship of agape, and may we be a church who understands the gospel and the exceedingly great, great, price that was paid when Jesus laid down his life as a sacrifice for sin give us hearts to worship you in fullness and in spirit and in truth amen